there. I'm Dr. Gabe Lowe, and welcome to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. This is a show that is less interested in answering life's difficult questions and more interested in the process of wrestling with them. This podcast is a forum to celebrate the messiness that makes us human. It is a place to invite the unanswerable questions because often it is precisely these types of questions that push us to dig deeper, to think harder, and to refine our approach to life. So, if you get to the end of the episode and you still have lots of questions, then I've done my job. I invite you on the pursuit of no answers. My guest today is Eric Stiller, who is the founding pastor of Central West End Church, a five-year-old church in the city of St. Louis. Their vision is to see the city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally. That includes a passion for pursuing justice for the most vulnerable in society, a passion that I saw him express many times from the pulpit. Please enjoy my conversation with Eric Stiller. Well, Eric Stiller, thank you for joining me. Um, I have had the pleasure of getting to know you over the past almost a year. We've almost been in St. Louis a year, and we have been joining uh, Central West End Church, and you are the head pastor there. And the topic that you chose for today is uh, specifically racial justice, but you know we'll be talking about a lot of topics related to that. And I just sort of wanted to start by hearing a little bit about your journey with this topic. Um, you know, is this something that has been a part of your thought in life since you were young growing up, or is it something that's been more recent that you've been wrestling with? What's been your journey and interaction with the topic of racial justice? Yeah. Well, thanks, Gabriel. Thank you so much for having me on. I just want to say it, uh, I've loved getting to know you and your wife, and it's just a joy having you guys uh, part of the community. And I'm just honored to be a part of, of this podcast and a guest today. So thank you. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, my personal journey with this, you know, I think it's been kind of a, a lifelong not that it's something I've been passionate about throughout my life, but I, you know, I think there are things early on in my life that prepared me or at least put this on my radar more. I remember when I was a kid, you know, eighth grade, freshman year of high school, my best friend was like one of the only African-American kids in, in town. And I just, you know, had a, a unique opportunity to really build a friendship with him. Um, we came, we were both born in the same part of Cleveland Ohio. We didn't know each other back then. We both, you know, had moved away from there early on, but we just had a lot of things that bonded us. Um, I think just having that relationship, it was an important friendship to me at that time. I remember when I was in high school, my dad was a very widely read guy. He had a, I remember he had two books on his bookshelf. One was James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time, and Eldridge Cleaver, Soul on Ice. And I was entranced with those books. I read them. I did a book report on them. It wasn't like, you know, as a 16-year-old kid, I was aware of the racial injustice in this country. Mm -hmm. Certainly not like we are today. But, and then growing older and becoming a musician and especially becoming a jazz musician and just having these, I think there were these constant touches throughout my life with the African-American community that started building an, uh, uh, an appreciation, um, a, a love for um, certain aspects of it. None of that made me an expert in anything. It just it just brought that community more into my radar. As I got older, I, I lived in Los Angeles, and then I moved to New York City just to continue my musician career. But it wasn't really until I got here to St. Louis in 2005, I was amazed um, by this the segregation in this city. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyone who lives here in St. Louis, the Del Mar Divide is infamous. The BBC did a famous spot on it. So it's, it's probably maybe even nationally known, but it's the, it's the dividing line racially and socioeconomically uh, in the city. And uh, I moved here to come to seminary and uh, I, I moved into a neighborhood just south of Del Mar, which is on the white side of Del Mar. And it was just immediately apparent to me within a few months. Um, and and it, was, it, was, it was remarkable to me. I don't, I, I, I don't know how, how else to say it. Just, I, I've never, experienced anything like that. I think one way of putting it like this would be, I got a gym membership up north of Del Mar at the mm -hmm. Page Avenue YMCA um, because they were able to give me a scholarship. I was on a, a pretty limited budget while I was in seminary. 
And so I would go up there multiple times a week and I would cross that Del Mar divide and I would go up into a completely different world. And I was one of a handful of white people in, in this gym and I was welcomed and accepted with, with open arms, but it was just a unique opportunity. And I, I remember right after Obama got elected in, in 2008, so this went now in January of 2009 after he was um, inaugurated, I went into the gym one day and I, I was talking to a guy I knew there. And you know how in the gym, you just make friendships with people. And we were just chatting. I was like, hey, how you doing today? What's going on? And he's like, he said, oh man, I'm still, I'm still celebrating. And here's, I thought he was talking about New Year's Eve because we were in January. And I remember thinking to myself, all these weeks later, oh, you're still kind of celebrating the new year. Like it's New Year's Eve. He was talking about the inauguration. Like it, it took me a few moments, but I realized that. And that's when it really, I, it was a window for me. And that began in many ways, a journey for me wanting to learn more about what I was seeing not just here in St. Louis, but in the nation around me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think something that stands out to me about what you just shared is, it sounds like St. Louis was sort of where it became a little bit more on your mind. And you, yet you shared, you, you've you been in LA, you've been in New York. Uh, I'm, I'm familiar with LA having grown up in Southern California. And there is a lot of racial diversity in those cities. Can you talk a little bit about perhaps what you saw before St. Louis when you did live in some of those big cities and perhaps what changed when you came to St. Louis? You know, what, what do you feel like made that mental shift for you in terms of, it sounds like when it came to St. Louis, it became a little bit more personal for you. Yeah, it, it definitely did. Um, where I lived in, in Southern California, I grew up in a city called Costa Mesa. Um, and I was, I was going to school in the 70s and 80s. So in my high school, there was a lot of, there was a very large Vietnamese population because that part of Southern California is where one of the largest Vietnamese populations, um, refugees from the war. Um, And then there was a a, a very large Hispanic population just north in Santa Ana. Um, But in my city, it was, you know, it was like, we knew that these these refugees were there, but it was a white city. And so it wasn't really on my radar growing Mm up. Even when I moved to LA, you know, I was living in a white Glendale community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when I moved to New York, you know, New York is a very diverse place, but even there it was, it was, you know, there was the seg, I'm sure there's segregation in every city. It's interesting when you look at the demographic maps, you can see it, but um, in New York, people are just mixing up together all the time. You get on the train and you're just, boom, you're in a, in a multi-ethnic situation, like almost any part of town you are. Um, in New York City, you're just, that's just, so it's, you don't see it as much and even in the neighborhoods. But when I got here to St. Louis, the starkness of the dividing line here, and it's, and it, there's not as much racial ethnic diversity here in St. Louis as in a place like Los Angeles or New York City, especially. And so it just became very stark yeah. for me here in St. Louis. Yeah. I mean, what about you? I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, uh, growing up as an Asian American and mm-hmm. your experience of, we, you know, we both lived in, in LA. I'm curious, like what that was like for you. Yeah, no, especially Southern California. You mentioned the Vietnamese population. Also, there's a lot of Chinese in Southern California. And so growing up, there was sort of a increasing awareness of my own racial and ethnic identity as I grew up. And uh, saw myself as a minority and the majority of my classmates were white. And so I think, you know, just mm. naturally developing as an adolescent, you just start to notice some of those trends and some things that I grew up with, my peers didn't. And so I don't think I really understood sort of what it meant to me until I moved away from Southern California, because I I think what happened in Southern California is I I had some of these experiences of being a minority, but I also had uh, the ability to be with people like me, mostly through church, but also uh, Irvine, where I did high school, there was a huge Asian population. And so when I went to high school, I wasn't a minority as much anymore because there was such a huge Asian population. Mm -hmm. And so when I moved to Chicago area for college, the Midwest, that was 
a, just a whole different world of just seeing uh, white suburbia. And that was yeah. sort of an eye opener for me. And I felt like I had to choose a lot more between, am I going to spend time with my white friends or am I going to spend time mm. with my Asian friends? And so it felt like mm. I was sort of caught in the middle. Uh, and now living here in St. Louis, I was actually just thinking now that we've moved back towards uh, meeting in person again, you know, socially distant and there's not as uh, the, the room isn't quite as filled. But I look around the church and like, oh, uh, you know, I see some Asians, but I see a lot more white people and I see uh, a few black people. But it's uh, yeah, you, you can sort of. <laughs> pick out some of those trends and you sort of see, okay, this is sort of where I fall. And I, I feel like that's something that I've, uh, I'm just more sensitized to here in the Midwest is I, I've, I'm very aware that there are more people who don't look like me than who do. Yeah. So I guess we should just sort of start off and, um, for people tuning in, this is a podcast, they can't see us. And so, you know, obviously I'm Asian, I am Chinese American, and you are white, and you can sort of speak to your own identifications. But I'm curious for you, I think um, this can be such a difficult and sensitive and triggering topic uh, for you as a person who uh, I would consider as being able to identify more with majority culture here in, in the U.S., you know, what is it like for you as a white man, and especially to wrestle with uh, this idea perhaps of privilege, you know, how do you define privilege, what does that mean to you, and how does that enter into your thoughts about what it means to, to understand race in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's been a process for me, Gabriel. I, I think one thing maybe that was helpful for me is I, I started exploring this a lot more intentionally several years before things blew up with Ferguson and Mike Brown and Black Lives Matter was started. And because mm -hmm. when that happened, there was this new racial discourse that has um, exploded really over the last five to six years, mm -hmm. um, seven years now, really since almost since Mike Brown. Mm -hmm. And, and that has, that has inflamed the conversation about race. It's been good. It's been healthy in that there's, I mean, I've never seen this level of, of discourse around race in my lifetime. I was one year old when Martin Luther King was assassinated. So I wasn't aware what was going on in the country when I was just a baby. Um, and then I grew up in the 70s and 80s and, and, you know, we're both from Orange County, you know, that just wasn't a topic of discussion. Mm -hmm. it, you know, when I was a kid, and, and it sounds like when you were going to high school either. So but but I was, I, I started exploring this around 10 years ago, um, even even a little earlier than that. And I was able to ha start having conversations with people, African-Americans, especially who were willing to educate me and help me understand and learn and grow more. And they introduced me to these concepts of white privilege. But because I, I think in many ways, just because the, the inflamed discourse hadn't yet begun in this country, it wasn't as volatile. Yeah. Um, it was just, hey, here's this concept. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense to me. That explains a lot of things I think I'm seeing, explains a lot of my experience. I think of racial, uh, white privilege, I, you know, sometimes memes are not helpful, but sometimes they are. And one of the ones that I think has been a, just a very helpful way of explaining it is, is the one that says white privilege does not mean that white people haven't had difficulties or challenges in this mm -hmm. world. It just means that our skin color isn't one of the things that's making life more difficult for us. And I think that's a pretty fair way of describing it. And I think it's true. I have access and entree to so many things in this society. I don't have to think twice about it. I have protections from encounters and dangers because of the color of my skin that I've just, I've never been aware of because I've never had to think about it. It's just something that's been handed to me. And that's, that's part of the ideology of, of white supremacy and white normativity, white normativity in this culture. It's just <laughs> the normalizing in the, um, of, of whiteness in this culture. And, and I understand maybe for some of your listeners, you know, that kind of language, you know, it, it has become so divisive and, and inflamed over the last handful of years, but I think it's actually very helpful ways 
of describing the kinds of dynamics we see in our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like when you first started wrestling and, and sort of digging into that with some of these helpful educators, as you mentioned, uh, it was just sort of very matter of fact. And I think the word that comes to mind is in our current location and in time, it's become very politicized uh, that it's sort of if you're on one side of the aisle, you believe a certain set of things about, you know, say Black Lives Matter or, or racial injustice. And if you're on the other side, it's just sort of this is what you believe. And it just sort of becomes tribalistic in that respect. But it sounds like, you know, you were sort of spared some of that in the beginning of your journey because it just was a way of, as you mentioned, describing the experience of, of one another. It wasn't really about drawing political lines. Is that sort of, would you say that's correct? Yeah, I would say that's fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I think back to Mike Brown and, and Ferguson, that was right at the beginning of my grad school journey, uh, 2014. And, you know, I can remember it just sort of based on those time markers. But yeah, I think in our current 2021, and starting back in the pandemic with the killing of George Floyd, sort of has taken on a new sort of life. And, you know, I think for me, I think even some of the the language has, uh, I, I think I've developed a, a richer vocabulary for having some of these discussions. And as you alluded to, some of these words can be very, uh, they can sound very loaded. So take, for example, white supremacy, that, that feels like such a heavy term, and it can sound also like a very judgmental term. Uh, but it sounds like for you, it's, it's more of a descriptive than a judgmental term. Do you, do you mind sort of elaborating a little bit about what you view as white supremacy and how we can perhaps understand it as not just a judgmental term, but perhaps more of a descriptive term? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I'm going to talk maybe more about this as not just uh, as a Christian, but also maybe more specifically as a pastor and um, you know, thinking about it theologically as mm-hmm. well as just um, culturally and sociologically, um, you're absolutely right. And and I I watch this. I see this happen all the time. That there's there's something about the term white supremacy that feels far more threatening and condemnatory than, especially like for instance, in Christian circles, I've noticed that like a lot of white Christians don't mind being called sinner. Mm. Sure. Yeah. You know, we That's just like, of course, well, of course I'm a sinner. It's safe. You know, it's like, it's part mm-hmm. of, it's almost like a badge of honor. It's like, well, of course I identify as, I, I would I have no problem calling myself a sinner because that's what good Christians do. You know, we acknowledge mm-hmm. that we're sinners. We acknowledge and we repent of that. And we would even be comfortable owning other specific ideologies. And I would, I would classify uh, white supremacy as an ideology um, also, as an idolatry, I think ideologies and idolatries theologically are very closely related. There's a lot of overlap in there. And there are multiple ideologies in our culture. Um, therefore, there are multiple idolatries, cultural idols in, in our society. And white supremacy is one of many, but it is one of which white people are, are much, much more unaware Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, I, I don't think many Christian, white Christians would mind say, identifying as like, okay, yeah, I, you know, I struggle sometimes, but being captive to the idolatry of consumerism mm-hmm. or individualism, sure. we'll call out those idolatries and we don't have, wouldn't even have uh, as much of a, a visceral existential reaction against saying, oh, you know, I, I'm subject to the idol of consumerism or individualism sometimes, mm-hmm. but the white supremacy one is just going to, it just, it raises up all kinds of defensiveness. And I mm-hmm. think for good reason, it's because when we think of that, we're thinking of Ku Klux Klan members burning crosses on, you know, at night on, on the lawn, front lawn of a black person's home or a black church. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this history of violence and terrorism and, and horror that's attached to it and lynchings and um, that is associated with that. And, I think the best thinkers on this point out that racism, and not just secular thinkers, but Christian thinkers as well, point out that racism over the years, over the decades, has, has not gone away. It's just changed forms. Mm-hmm. So what would have appeared racist during the Civil War, during the 1940s, may not have, you know, well, listen, we don't have slaves anymore. We don't do this. We don't do that. We're not racist. Mm-hmm. But, but there's still Jim Crow. 
you know, there's still all kinds of stuff going on. And now we look back, you know, from our position on the 50s and the 60s, and we think, well, of course there was racism, of course there was white supremacy, but we don't see the forms it takes nowadays. And I think one of the things that's really necessary for us, especially I would say as white Christians, but for all white people, is to, um, I, we, we got to find a way to, to be able to look at this without being immediately seized with defensiveness. I mean, that you know, the phrase for it is white fragility, but then mm-hmm. you, you use that word and all of a sudden, again, people are starting to get defensive. So I think the gospel gives us unique resources for being able to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, we could talk about that if you want to, but I think it's because of the past and especially the gruesome, violent past that's associated with white supremacy um, we say, well, because I'm not doing that, or I didn't have anything to do with that, therefore, I'm not a white supremacist, therefore, I'm not subject to this ideology, without realizing that it can change forms and still be just as prevalent, if not as explicit, or, or outwardly explicitly gruesome. that you are a pastor and that this is something I've heard you speak on from the pulpit, I I would like to explore that a little bit with you. You know, I think that when Christians approach this topic, I think some of the things that I hear is, why is this so much of a priority? And I think some of that is rooted in perhaps some of the the change of form that you alluded to, but I think also there can be a spiritualization of this topic. In particular, I think of the passage where Paul says, uh, you know, there's no Greek or Jew, there's no male, female, there's no, um, I'm probably butchering it, but yeah, there's no uh, slave or free. And, you know, I think the sentiment is race or ethnicity isn't your identity and so we should just all love each other just as Christians. And it sort of turns into this colorblind approach of, I, you know, I, I acknowledge that racism's bad. And so the alternative is perhaps, why don't we just all treat each other like Christians? And this is just uh, how we see each other. And we're all equal in God's eyes. And therefore, Black Lives Matter isn't necessary. You know, all this talk about race is extraneous or inflammatory. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot. Um, you know, one of my goals in in having conversations with folks, and especially difficult conversations where there may be disagreements, is as a Christian, I am I'm seeking, and I've been trained in this by by my teachers and by my mentors, both at seminary and just in, in my Christian life in general, to seek to understand that whatever viewpoint I'm interacting with, what about that viewpoint can I affirm from a biblical framework? Because as, as human beings created in the image of God, our core values, our core convictions, no matter how distorted or misinformed or idolatrous they may be, may be um, at some point and in some way are going to be springing from something that reflects our, um, the goodness of creation, no matter how distorted it may be in our current life. And so I want to I want to engage conversations. That, that's one of my aspirational goals is to be able to begin by affirming what's good and right about what I'm seeing. So and I think that's one thing that really hampers our discourse, um, especially in the church right now around um, racial issues, is because in many ways we're these things are so inflammatory to us, and our sacred cores are being um, violated, and so we react with defensiveness and accusatory language and condemnatory language because we're defending our truth. But the biblical witness, the biblical um, framework that we're offered, especially through the gospel, is full of tensions that need to be embraced and not turned into false dichotomies. So I think especially this question of identity, there is no Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female. And that's holding on to something very important in the Bible, and especially in Christianity, that, that we are as human beings, we're all created in the image of God. And even more than that, as Christians, we're all united and defined by Christ's redemption for us on the cross. And that we are our status before God and our belovedness in God is not rooted in or defined by our ethnic, cultural distinctions, um, economic distinctions. And, you know, Paul, that, that, 
he's, he's getting into economic, ethnic, and gender distinctions in that passage and saying, none of that matters for our status before God. We all have equal status before God, equally beloved by God. Yeah. Um, and, and that's good. It's important to hold on to that. So we would affirm that. But on the other hand, the Bible from, from page one in Genesis one is full of distinction. It's full of diversity. You see God creating each thing, the phrase over and over again, according to its kind, according mm-hmm. to its kind. God loves diversity. God, God, diversity was God's idea. God loves a seemingly endless diversity in his creation. And, and he created that. And so there's this tension between uniformity and diversity between sameness and between difference. And if we don't hold those two things together as Christians, then we're going to fall into errors and we're going to reduce the gospel to one of those things or the other. And so, especially with, with regards to the racial conversation, we want to hold on to uh, the, the universal shared nature that we all have, that we're image bearers. We want to hold on to our identity in Christ. But if we erase the distinctions and the differences between us culturally and ethnically, because those cultural and ethnic distinctions are going to show up in the new creation. Mm-hmm. Revelation shows us that, that God, that, that God is not going to erase cultural and ethnic distinctions. He, God loves diversity. So diversity is going to show up in the new creation. So we can't erase that and say, none of that matters. It doesn't, it may not define us, mm-hmm. um, but it still describes us. And so I use that language of what defines us and what describes us. We're united by what defines us, but but we need to be able to name the things that the differences that describe us. Um, and especially I think in this fallen world, that's important to do because if we only emphasize our sameness, the things that we share in universe, then, then whatever culture is dominant is going to end up still holding dominance and still being normative in that culture. If we're not willing to recognize and embrace the diversity that's there. And also I would lastly just add to embrace the reality that sin is never just an abstract category because we're embodied creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, sin is always going to manifest itself in embodied ways. And so it's going to manifest itself um, interpersonally, but also in the systems of our world. And that's going to mean racially and ethnically as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. You know, I think that um, I, I don't want to spend too much time just sort of talking about all the arguments that get thrown out there because <laughs> Uh, you and I probably agree a, a lot more than we disagree on this topic. And, you know, there's not really a, a fair alternative wow. perspective. And so I don't want to just slam them against the the chopping block. Um, right. But, you know, I think in, another thing that can come up uh, in these discussions is sort of a sense that talking about race just makes it a bigger issue than it, it really is. And, and I'm curious because, uh, as I mentioned, I've heard, heard you bring this up on a number of occasions during sermons. And so this obviously is a priority to you at, at some level. You know, I, I'm curious where that priority comes from. And, and not to say that you have to list out all of your priorities and order them one, two, three, but I, I'm curious, you know, why do you think that this is something that needs to be preached? From the pulpit, you know, as a pastor, why why do you think this is something that Christians need to take seriously? Because it's such a huge, but also hidden part of this country's history that has never really been dealt with. Mm-hmm. You're a psychologist, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. In families, if we don't grieve our losses. And just as individuals, if we don't grieve our losses, we just sweep things under the rug. It, that leads to such huge distortions and, and breakdown in, in our lives, in our families, in our living systems. And this country as a living system has never dealt with its racial past. Mm-hmm. And it's such a huge, huge factor in the history of this country. We fought a war over it that has still not been resolved, that the narrative has never been resolved and the the outcomes of that war have never been resolved. And so while there are other issues in our country that they're easier to see and name Mm -hmm. and say, these are things we have to deal with. I, I think one of the things that's especially difficult about this one is that we're having a difficulty in our country right now naming what the problem is. In other words, 
Um, people who lean right will say, well, there's really systemic racism isn't really an issue anymore. We dealt with that in the 60s and we've moved on and, and we're in a post-racial society. And so whatever issues we're seeing, we, they would name it differently. Whereas those who lean left are saying, no, we're still seeing brokenness in our systems. We're still see, seeing the, the evil of those systems we're still living downstream from those systems and the water is still deeply polluted and needs to be cleaned up. And, and, and those are two different ways of naming the realities. I mean, there, nobody denies the, the, the inequities in our society um, between black and white, let's just mm-hmm. put it, you know, in those two categories. But what we disagree with is over the causes of those. Mm-hmm. And, and until we can name it, you know, it's, it's, we're going to continue to argue over it. But my perspective, and I'm willing to be challenged on this, I want to listen to you know, what people say, but I think it's like a grief that we've never named. We've never dealt with what happened. And, and until we do that, we're, sk- we're going to just be continuing to perpetuate the same issues and problems and, and maybe even make them worse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I think grief is you know, hitting the nail on the head. I'm not exactly sure when this podcast episode will be released. Uh, it's obviously not going to be released tomorrow. And so for listeners trying to place this conversation, you know, we're probably, a, a, what, three-ish weeks from Atlanta where some different salons were attacked, uh, some different spas were attacked, and the majority of the victims were Asian women and you know, I think there there still is, you know, even a, a few weeks later, I think there still is a, a part of me that is still in a place of grief. And um, mm. I, I think at this point, you know, it even though the dialogue can be so politicized and, you know, there's sort of arguments on, you know, whether this was uh, racially motivated or not, I think the fact of the matter is this community, this that I'm a part of, this Asian community, we're still grieving some of these losses. And mm. so, you know, I, I think that is a very appropriate word and a, a very appropriate concept that really characterizes the this topic that we're talking about. Yeah. And I when I say grief, I don't want to I don't want to minimize other things that go along with that. So it's not, I, I think it's not, we need to grieve, but we also need to name truths mm-hmm. and okay. correct wrongs and address injustices. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want to just, you know, uh, minimize it. It's like, Oh, we just need to grieve what happened and, and move on. Like that we, we need to address the, the serious injustices and imbalances that continue to exist in our in our country i think the reparations conversation is a huge part of that and again that's one that like i don't you know so many white christians i know are just like not even about to have that conversation that's just i mean we, sure. we just you know yeah, yeah. That, that's maybe a couple steps down the road <laughs> <laughs> but i think that's a necessary con- i think that's something that we really need to to talk about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i mean that's yeah, a biblical yeah. concept deeply biblical um, and, and it goes throughout the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. But I, yeah, I just wanted to say, I think grieving is, is one very important part of it, but and not the only part of it. But I, that, it, this situation in our country reminds me of what happens in families when you don't deal with what happened in the past and just sweep it under the rug. It just leads to such distortion and dysfunction and, and creates havoc in so many lives for generations to come. And I think that's part of what we're seeing at a macro level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that you alluded to, and um, you know, I, I did take a, a listen to one of the videos that you recommended, and that will be on my website for people who want to check it out. But one of the uh, points of tension that I think was pointed out in the video was people who are right-leaning will sort of point to the breakdown of, of families as sort of the reason or the culprit of uh, why there are these areas of brokenness in our society, and people who who lean left will point more to the systemic racism and sort of the systemic structures that keep white normalcy in place and and white supremacy in place. Um, how have you come to sort of deal with that tension? Because you know I'm sure that there are parts which both sides are, are, are getting right, you know, that they're looking at the same issue and pulling different things away from it. 
And it's not to create this sense that one side has it all right and the other side is completely wrong. Um, but as we've alluded to, we, we both have our biases. We both have uh, our particular sensibilities that we bring to this discussion. And so I, I'm curious how you've wrestled with that tension of, you know, not getting sucked into just swinging the pendulum to one side. Yeah. Well, and this is where um, I really, uh, I mean, I hope in all of my life, I, I uh, you know, lean into the Bible and, and look to it as the ultimate authority in my life. But the Bible really gives us the resources for thinking about this because the Bible never makes a false dichotomy out of systemic and individual factors mm. in looking at the large scale issues in our world, as well as the, you know, maybe the issues that might affect us at a smaller level, like in our, in our own lives and families or communities. But the Bible gives us resources for seeing the distortions in our lives and in our world as being shaped by both systemic and individual factors. And that means that conceptually, philosophically, we already have the resources for being able to acknowledge both of those kinds of factors at play when we're looking at issues in our society. So now the question is, you know, in any specific instance, like the, the inequities in our society, that's a specific conversation. Um, but the Bible gives us resources, at least it, it gives us permission to be able to see both factors at play um, without getting defensive about the reality of both of those. I, the best sociological work I've seen on it will acknowledge that there are both of those factors at play. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I think that's true. I, but I do think that even the individual factors or they'll be called different ways, like cultural factors or, you know, the, the family factors that even those in many ways have been shaped by the systemic factors. If you, if you grow up in a neighborhood that is racked by poverty because of systemic factors that have produced poverty at that level in that community. And here in St. Louis, the history is undeniable. Mm -hmm. the, the, the racist segregationist history of this city is it's just undeniable. And so families growing up in that, of course, there's, there's going to be problems and, and issues and dysfunctions because that's what poverty does to people. You know, I think as I've wrestled with this as a Christian and for me, and this is nothing to say against my family, but politics wasn't really a big conversation for us growing up. And so politics really has been something that I've educated myself more as I've grown older. And now that, you know, I, I will pass, but, you know, now that I have the privilege of voting, uh, the privilege of being active, uh, an active citizen, you know, I think something that I've wrestled with, and especially over the last several years, is sort of the, I guess, hope that I place in politics and, and perhaps what I would see as more a human endeavor towards making things right. And we're talking about justice and, and righting wrongs versus things that are, are responsibilities of the church, the church to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ and to be ministers of healing. And, you know, I think that there are ways in which you can pursue justice. And as we're talking about today, racial justice in, in both of those arenas, but I think um, it's still something that I'm trying to figure out for myself of what mm. is the hope that I am placing in politics to get certain things done versus what things are, is the church just supposed to take up and say, hey, politics is going to do their thing. We have to do our thing. We have to be faithful to the call that we have in our communities. I'm curious what your insights or, or your uh, way of, of reconciling or, or thinking through that tension of what is our responsibility as social and political citizens and what is our responsibility as Christian citizens? Yeah, man, that's a huge question. Um, it's something I wrestle with a, a lot as well. And I've been, you know, it's been one of my um, areas of study that I've really tried to learn more about over the last several years, um, both, you know, so just as a Christian, as an individual, as a citizen in this country, but also as a pastor and somebody who's responsible for um, caring for others and teaching others about these kinds of things. There's a, there's a long history of thought about this from day one in the church. Um, 
And, and there are um, at least, you know, in the, in the sources I've studied, there's no, I've never, I've, the most thoughtful people have always pointed out that there really is no one kind of just monolithic quote way that the church or Christians is supposed to engage society. I think they, that the most thoughtful mm-hmm. scholars have always said it, 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 it's going to be in many ways contextual. Um, yeah. What was possible for, for the, the early Christians is radically different than what's possible for us. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say that what's possible for us 2000 years downstream from the early church is possible for us because of what happened 2000 years ago. And, and so there are, there's there are historical seeds and historical trajectories that started with the church that have led to what are some very different possibilities for us today. I mean, the, the early church was in, in an empire in which there was no such thing as, I mean, you, citizens had rights, but not everybody was a citizen. Mm-hmm. And um, their ability to affect political and cultural change uh, was vastly limited compared to what we have. But what we have in our country today is a direct result of the legacy that was started by Christians 2000 years ago. I mean, the, the challenge that they issued to the empire by refusing to worship Caesar it started a tradition of calling out truth to power mm-hmm. of publicly refusing to worship the emperor and, yeah. and publicly refusing to serve the empire. That was radically subversive in the ancient world and Christians lost their lives for that. That started this tradition that is, is alive today in, in modern democracies and modern liberal societies of speaking truth to power. And so we have our Christian past to thank for the the freedoms and the abilities we have now. So I think a lot of it means taking into account uh, what, what's our context, what can we do, what's possible for us mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. society to do. Uh, we have much more political power as citizens than people in the past did. And so I think as Christians, we're called on to um, to use that. And mm-hmm. I think that I think a lot of it is just thinking very carefully, thinking very contextually, but always keeping in mind the call of the gospel that we don't place our ultimate hope in political machinery and political power. And that when we do think about politics, we're thinking about it much more broadly and holistically. It's not just pulling a lever at the ballot box, but thinking about what kind of society are we building together? And the, the, the Greek word polis, uh, the city, is where we get our word politics. And so thinking about the polis, thinking about the community, um, it's a huge topic. Another huge topic uh, to, to keep this uh, ball rolling is this idea of justice. And I, I've heard you speak uh, on different words relating to how we think about justice in the Bible. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that I've heard, and I, I think I, I personally feel too, is the sense that this problem is so big, like racism isn't going to go away. You know, if we're going to be global about it, sin's not going to go away. That uh, until Jesus returns, we're going to be living in this broken world. And yet, you know, I do believe there is some responsibility for us presently to pursue justice. That that is part of our call as a Christian. And at the same time, recognizing that it's not going to be completed until Jesus completes it. And so I, I, I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts in terms of how do we, you know, I think first at a, a philosophical level, you know, what does that look like in terms of how should we think rightly about the energy that we're putting out there? But I think also emotionally, it can be very exhausting to feel like, mm. you know, I, I'm putting out all this effort and maybe I see it move an inch or it's two step forwards, you know, one step back. Um, you know, I'm curious sort of how you think about and wrestle with this reality that the things that we're fighting against and the the thing that we're striving for of this sort of uh, pie in the sky idea of justice feels so distant. And again, at at a emotional level, it can also often feel defeating or hopeless. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It- the resurrection means everything to us with this question, mm-hmm. I think. Because the resurrection of Jesus physically in this world, the Bible says it's the first fruits 
of the new creation. He, his resurrection is, is a foretaste of what's going to happen one day to the whole cosmos. So it's not just God, dis, you know, the, 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 the biblical storyline is not God saving individual souls spiritually and then destroying this world and carrying those souls away to some disembodied heaven. The whole mm -hmm. biblical storyline is focused on God's promise to renew the material creation. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. And so on the one hand, that's God's work and only he can bring it about fully, only he can bring it about ultimately. So that promise saves us from despair and, and from hopelessness. But on the other hand, he does call us to bear witness to his ultimate renewal and to plant seeds in, in our day and age right now to be a part of what he's going to do one day completely in the future. He calls his church to be a part of that work. And so there's a tension there as well. I, I said a little bit ago that the, the gospel, the Bible is full of these tensions that we got to hold together. It's hard. I mean, you feel like you're the rope getting pulled in two different directions a lot of times, but we're called to stay in that place and hold these things together. So on the one hand, God is going to renew this material creation. So that, that gives me hope for this material world and, and, and hopefully prevents me from falling into despair. Um, but on the other hand, the Bible promises that, that that's God's work that he's going to do and, and not ours, that we don't have the power to bring about that ultimate world. So that saves me from utopian naivete. And so there's, you know, I'm, I'm saved out of my despair, but I'm also saved out of my triumphalistic naivete. And, the, and I'm called into this tension between those two things. The way I oftentimes will put it to the church is that our job in this world is to be a, a foretaste, so, uh, to point to a future world by making a, a meaningful difference in this world. We're not going to make an ultimate difference. Only God can. But we are called to, to, to whatever extent we can to make a meaningful difference in this world. So I will hold that distinction between ultimate change and meaningful change. We point to the ultimate change of, of the future world by making it a, a meaningful change in this world. And sometimes you're right. It feels like one step forward, two steps back. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot, you know, sort of big picture and some of these philosophical ideas. And uh, I want to sort of talk a little bit about, you know, practically what does this look like? And I think one of the things that comes to mind as I think about, okay, what does this look like practically is some of these conversations like we're having. Uh, and I think one of the biggest barriers that we'd run into, regardless of where you're starting out from and regardless of what your leanings are, is sort of these conversation stoppers. Uh, and we alluded to some of them in, in the beginning, you know, talking about privilege or white supremacy or fragility. Um, but I think within the church, it can be, and I, I don't know exactly how common the, this still is nowadays, but I think the term social justice can raise some eyebrows and it can sort of sound like it's leading towards either uh, liberalism or progressivism. And, uh, you know, it could be sort of this slippery slope mentality of you're sort of watering down the gospel and not staying true to, uh, you know, saving souls. And so I, I'm curious, you know, as somebody who has been, uh, as you have, very intentional about having some of these conversations, have you run into some of these conversation stoppers? And if so, you know, how have you worked through those to sort of actually, I, I, I don't know, you know, have you been able to work through some of those or, uh, you know, how do you recommend that people work through some of those? Yeah, I, I have, and I hope I'm continuing to work through some of those conversation stoppers. I mean, just, you're right. You mentioned it a bit ago that we both of us, you know, probably tend to agree more about this um, subject, then we would disagree. And, and, and I would say, I'm definitely somebody who is very positive about, about acknowledging the systemic factors that are at play here mm -hmm. um, and holding them together with individual factors. I am I'm somebody who's very supportive of the idea of reparations. I'm very mm -hmm. supportive of the idea that there's such a thing as social justice and that we ought to be pursuing it as Christians, because the Bible, again, gives us the resources for thinking about this and talking about this. And so I want to root everything I do and think in the Bible. And so when I'm thinking about whatever the conversation stoppers are, I want to say, okay, great. But what does the Bible say about this? 
And how does the Bible give us resources for thinking about this? And personally, I'm always interested in whenever I'm hearing things that are conversation stoppers and that are these seemingly intractable dichotomies in our culture, um, I'm thinking it's probably a false dichotomy. I, so I just kind of begin with maybe an assumption that there's a, probably a deeper story and maybe there's a tension here that's worth digging into and finding out more about uh, rather than a dichotomy that we need to harden and, and ossify and just, and, just, and, and just get into our tribe and really fight hard against the other tribe. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking there's going to be a both and solution here mm-hmm. um, and that I'm expecting to see the Bible give me resources for thinking about that. So there have been people that have been I, very helpful for me in thinking about that. I'll just say Tim Keller wrote uh, a series of essays last year in the months following George Floyd's murder that have been some of the most helpful recent thoughts for me personally about race and especially Rudy. I mean, he is just so deeply scriptural. Everything he writes, he's just constantly rooting it in scripture. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think those kinds of endeavors are what helped me think through these issues. And there've been others, Esau Macaulay in his book, Reading While Black and other African-American theologians, they've been talking about this for literally centuries. And nobody called them Marxists or critical race theorists. It's only in the last five years that those things have become part of our discourse and people are worrying about them that that was never on their radar before those conversations got introduced into the national conversation. So I think we got to go back to the Bible and see what the Bible shows us about this and, and be willing to go against our tribe if the Bible leads us in that direction. Yeah. And speaking of the Bible... Obviously, the Bible is chock full of examples, but I'm curious, you know, are there any particular scriptural references that you personally have found particularly helpful or that uh, have a special meaning for you? With regard to this conversation in yeah, particular? Yeah, with regards to yeah. uh, racial justice and, and this topic. Yeah, oh, I mean, so many, but, but a few spring up. So, for instance, the Exodus narrative is hugely important. Uh, the first 15 <laughs> chapters are all about their liberation their political, economic, physical liberation from political, economic, and physical bondage. Mm-hmm. I think we th- that there, there's just no mistaking that. Yeah. And so there's a huge resource right there in the Bible that's part of the, the foundational story in the first five books of the Bible that gives us resources for seeing these things at play in our society and addressing these things at play in our society and recognizing God's heart to rescue people who are in that kind of a situation in society. But then the next 25 chapters are all about God wanting to restore them spiritually and bring them into worship. The word serve is a huge word in Exodus. In the beginning, they're serving Pharaoh, but by the end, they're serving God. And and that means that serve is another word for worship. Or another way of saying it is that if you serve anything other than God, you're a slave. So God's interested in bringing the Israelites out of political and economic bondage, but into spiritual freedom as well, because they're still sinners who need salvation. You know, the golden calf in Exodus 32 shows that. And then their ongoing history and the prophets calling them to account. Um, the, one of the, the things that's been very meaningful to me is to see that in the prophets, and you see this all through um, all of the prophets, really, but especially prophets like Amos or um, Isaiah, this connection between spiritual idolatry and social injustice. And those things go hand in hand in the prophetic critique of Israel. And so as the church, we should never be afraid of critiquing ourselves. A lot of this conversation around, around race in the church is, is so defensive. And, and if we look at the Bible, we're, God's always going to hold his people to account. And so we should never be, we should be embracing that. You know, the proverb says, a wise man welcomes rebuke, welcomes being taught and learning from his mistakes. But the Bible shows us that the unbreakable connection between spiritual idolatry and social injustice. Mm-hmm. And then you go into the new Testament and the, the first big issue the church had to wrestle with was ethnic division between Jews and Gentiles and figuring out a way to bring that all of those people together into one worshiping community and wrestling through issues of justice and division, ethnic division and, and racial hostilities between those two groups. Peter's story in Acts 10 and 11, and then later on in, in Galatians, Galatians chapter three, is a huge case study in, you know, what we might call Jewish normativity and Jewish supremacy yeah. and how Peter had to wrestle with that 
early on in, in his Christian journey as a leader in the church, but then had to come back and continue wrestling with it later on in his Christian life. And I, I, you know, I always say it's like in Galatians, Paul talks about how he had to put on his Gentile lives matter t-shirt and go <laughs> confront Peter on his Jewish normativity. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So those are some passages that are meaningful for me. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up, but uh, one thing that I did want to ask you before we finish is, um, and again, I think this is something that drew both Jesse and I to Central West End is this uh, idea that the church is involved in its community. And that, I think that's something that's very important to us. And it, you know, I think what, part of the reason why we're drawn to Central West End Church is because it's important to you guys. And so I, I'm curious, you know, as a pastor, what is uh, sort of your approach and what has been your thought process of, and for those who don't know, this is a very new church too, that this is a church plant. And we celebrated our uh, sort of inaugural Sunday not too long ago. Uh, but yeah, how, how do you, as a pastor, sort of lead a church to be involved uh, in their physical location, geographical location in the community around issues of justice and particularly racial justice? Mm very imperfectly and and feel like I'm constantly falling on my face. And um, what's very important to me, and this is something that's, that's become a a guiding principle. One one of the main guiding principles for me over the years that I've been trying to lean into this um, both personally and as a church leader is intentionality. There there's um, it it just means showing up over and over and over again and leaning into building relationships. There's not going to be a lot of trust on the front end. Um, I've, I've learned that the, the African-American community very rightly uh, is going to be suspicious of white people wanting to come in and be a part of justice or, you know, I, I mean, there's just all kinds of like paternalistic language and behaviors that comes into this. So I've just had to learn very slowly and very imperfectly how to just kind of keep showing up for relationships and listening and deferring and submitting and sitting at the feet of, of the black leaders around me and just wanting to be there to listen and learn and, and then just say, okay, how can we help? And how can we be a part of this? Um, but so a lot of that is just intentionality. And so if we're going to make a commitment to a relationship, we're going to, we're going to say yes to maybe one or two things that's going to mean saying no to a lot of other things, but it's because we want to really be there for the things we do say yes to. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got a relationship with the school, you know, and we're building another relationship with the, with the church, just, uh, another church that's involved with that school, but that church just sits north of Del Mar. And so it's like, there's only just a few things that I think we can really do well. And so I'd rather do those things well and, and be intentional and proactive and in there for the long haul. Um, and, and then just, just being humble and listening for the Lord and, and following where he leads us and hanging in there. Again, that tension that you talked about earlier about kind of the hopelessness, like it's just, you know, one step forward, two steps back. I think that's where the resurrection it helps me keep plugging away at it day after day. It's like, I know the Lord is going to bring about a new world. And our call today is to bear witness to that new world by, by being faithful today and hopefully bearing some measure of fruit. But we're, we're not going to bring about utopia in this world, which can sound very defeatist to a lot of people, uh, I think. But but Christians are the ones who've been hanging in there for a long time. I mean, there's a great book by Tom Holland. He's a British historian. He's not a Christian. It's called Dominion. And he traces out the, the history of the church and its impact on the moral imagination of, of Western society over the last 2000 years. It's amazing how much of our society and our commitment to justice and progress is shaped by the Christian moral imagination. So he, he'll draw a direct link between Me Too and LGBTQ activism and racial justice, a direct link between what we see today and the Christian vision for the world. So we have resources for leaning into this, but I think we need to reclaim those in many ways because the American church, because of our consumerism and our individualism, we're we're prey to many, many idolatries in this world that keep us from really embracing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we could just keep talking. I'd love to, (laughs) you know, and and I'm sure we'll do this in person, but, you know, for the sake of this podcast, you mentioned some resources and those resources will be on my website for people who want to go check it out. And 
continue learning in this area. But, uh, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me, sharing some of your thoughts in this area. And I appreciate you giving your time to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be a part of it. Love you guys and praying for more. Thank you for tuning in to the Hard Questions, No Answers podcast. Still have questions? Oh, good. I was afraid we answered them all. For more information about HQNA podcast, visit drgabelow.com. That's D-R-G-A-B-E-L-O-W-E.com. Additional educational materials recommended by my guests can be found in the podcast tab. And for the updates, news, and behind the scenes, follow HQNA podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HQNAPOD. HQNA podcast is independently produced by Gabriel Lowe. Music is Cocktail Fun by Stock Music 331 found on Pond 5. And logo design is by Kenny Lowe. Stay tuned for new episodes released each Wednesday. And thank you for joining me on the journey of no answers.